Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Rudolf Steiner, an outline of occult science with commentary by me, Frater R.C. Humans are able to attain knowledge by means of inspiration and intuition only through soul-spirit exercises. They resemble those that have been described as meditation for the attainment of imagination. While, however, those exercises that lead to imagination are linked to the impressions of the sensory physical world, this link must disappear more and more in the exercises for inspiration. In order to make clear to himself what has happened there, let a person consider again the symbol of the Rose Cross. If he ponders upon this symbol, he has an image before him, the parts of which have been taken from the impressions of the sense world, the black color of the cross, the roses, and so forth. Combining of these parts into a rose cross has not been taken from the physical sense world. If now a student of the spirit attempts to let the black cross and also the red roses as pictures of sense realities disappear entirely from his consciousness and only to retain in his soul the spirit activity that has combined these two parts, then he has a means for meditation that leads him by degrees to inspiration. One may place the following question before one's soul. What have I done inwardly in order to combine cross and rose into a symbol. What I have done, my own soul process, I wish to hold fast to. I let the picture itself, however, disappear from my consciousness. Then I wish to feel within me all that my soul has done in order to bring the image into existence. But I do not wish to hold the image itself. I wish to live quite inwardly within my own activity, which has created the image. Thus, I do not intend to meditate on an image, but to dwell in my own image-creating soul activity. Such meditation must be carried out in regard to many symbols. This then leads to cognition through inspiration. Another example would be the following. One meditates on the thought of a growing and decaying plant. One allows to arise in the soul the image of a slowly growing plant as it shoots up 
out of the seed as it unfolds leaf on leaf until it develops flower and fruit. Then again, one meditates on how it begins to fade until its complete dissolution. One acquires gradually by meditating on such an image a feeling of growth and decay for which the plant remains a mere symbol. From this feeling, if this exercise is continued with perseverance, there may arise the imagination of the transformation that underlies physical growth and decay. If one wishes, however, to attain the corresponding state of inspiration, one has to carry out the exercise differently. The student must recall his own soul activity that has gained the visualization of growth and decay from the image of the plant. He must now let the plant disappear completely from consciousness and only meditate upon what he has himself done inwardly. Only through such exercises is it possible to ascend to inspiration. In the beginning, it will not be entirely easy for the student of the spirit to comprehend completely how he should go about such an exercise. The reason for this is that the human being who is accustomed to have his inner life determined by outer impressions, immediately finds himself uncertain and wavering when he has to unfold a soul life that has discarded all connection with outer impressions. In a still higher degree than in the acquiring of imagination, the student must be clear in regard to these exercises that lead to inspiration, that he ought only to carry them out when he accompanies them with all those precautionary measures that can lead to safeguarding and strengthening of his power of discrimination, his life of feeling, and his character. If he takes these precautions, then he will have a twofold result. In the first place, he will not, through these exercises, lose the equilibrium of his personality during supersensible perception. Secondly, he will at the same time gain the faculty of being able to actually carry out what is required in these exercises. He will maintain in regard to them that they are difficult only so long as he has not yet acquired a quite definite soul condition, quite definite feelings and sensations. He will soon gain understanding and also ability for these exercises if in patience and perseverance he fosters in his soul such inner faculties as favor the unfolding of supersensible knowledge. If he grows accustomed to withdrawing into himself frequently in such a way that he is less concerned with brooding on himself than with quietly arranging and working over his life experiences, he will gain much. He will see that his thoughts and feelings are enriched if he brings one life experience into relationship with another. He will become aware to what a high degree he experiences something new, not only by having new impressions and new experiences, but also by permitting the old to work in him. If he sets to work in such a way that he lets his experiences, indeed even his acquired opinions, play back and forth as though he were not at all involved in them with his sympathies and antipathies, with his personal interests and feelings, he will prepare an especially good soil for the forces of supersensible cognition. He will develop in truth what may be called a rich inner life. 
The question of chief importance here, however, is equanimity and equilibrium of the soul qualities. Man is too easily inclined, if he surrenders himself to a certain soul activity, to fall into one-sidedness. For example, if he becomes aware of the advantage of inner meditation and dwelling in his own thought world, he may develop such an inclination toward it that he begins to shut himself off from the impressions of the outer world. This, however, leads to the withering and devastation of the inner life. Those who go the farthest, who preserve, alongside the ability to withdraw inwardly, an open receptivity to all impressions of the outer world, one need not think here merely of the so-called important impressions of life, but every man in every situation, even in the poorest surroundings, may have sufficient experiences if he only keeps his mind sufficiently receptive. One need not seek the experiences. They are present everywhere. Of special importance, also, is the way experiences are transformed in the human soul. For example, somebody may discover that a person revered by him or others has this or that quality that may be viewed as a fault of character. Such an experience may cause the human being to meditate in a twofold manner, he may simply say to himself now that I have recognized hit this fault, I can no longer revere this person in the same way as formerly. Or he may pose the following question to himself, how does it happen that this revered person is afflicted with this fault? Should I not consider that this fault is not merely a fault, but something due to the circumstances of this person's life, perhaps even to his great capacities? A human being posing this question to himself will perhaps arrive at the result that his reverence is not in the least to be decreased by the discovery of such a fault. He will have learned something every time he goes through such an experience. He will have added something to his understanding of life. It would, however, certainly be disastrous to the human being were he to let himself be misled by the merit of such a view of life, to excuse every thing he possibly can, in people and things for whom he has a preference, or even to form the habit of disregarding all faults because it brings him advantage for his inner development. This will not be the case if he has the subjective impulse, not merely to censure faults, but to understand them. It will occur when this attitude is demanded by the case in question, regardless of the gain or loss to him who judges it. It is entirely correct that one cannot learn through condemning faults, but only through understanding them. If, however, because of understanding, one should entirely exclude disapproval, one would not get very far either. Here also is not, it is not the question of one-sidedness in either direction, but of equanimity and equilibrium of soul powers. It is especially so with the soul quality that is of great significance for the human development of the human being. This is what is called the feeling of reverence or devotion. Those who have developed this feeling in themselves or possess it from the outset through a fortunate gift of nature have an excellent basis for the forces of supersensible knowledge. The person who in childhood or youth has been able to look up with self-surrendering admiration to personalities as though to high ideals possesses something at the foundation of his soul in which supersensual cognition thrives especially well. 
And whoever with mature judgment in life looks upon the starry heavens and feels with wonder, in complete surrender, the revelation of exalted powers makes himself thus mature for knowledge of supersensory worlds. Something similar is the case with those who are able to admire the forces ruling in human life, and it is not of little importance if we, even as mature human beings, can have reverence to the highest degree for other men and women whose worth we divine or believe we know. Only where such reverence is present can the view into the higher world open up. The person who is unable to revere will in no way advance very far in his knowledge. Whoever does not wish to acknowledge anything in the world will find that the essential nature of things is closed to him. The person, however, who permits himself to be misled through an unrestrained feeling of reverence and surrender, to deaden in himself a healthy consciousness of self and self-confidence, sins against the law of equanimity and equilibrium. The student will continually work on himself in order to make himself more and more mature. He is then justified in having confidence in his own personality and in having faith that its powers will continually increase. If he achieves correct feelings in this direction, he may say to himself, In me there lie hidden forces, and I can draw them forth from my inner being. Therefore, when I see something that I must revere because it stands above me, I need not only revere it, but I may hope to develop myself to such a degree that I become similar to what I revere. To me this brings to mind the idea both of cult coming from the phrase cultus deorum, care of the gods, and the idea of a theosis, or the divinization of the self, being that we divinize towards that which we revere and, and devote ourselves to and respect. And so we must be careful what we devote ourselves to or what we look up to and hold ourselves to ideals, and in so doing we develop those virtues in ourselves. And of course, that's the idea from Greek virtue ethics, or Nicomachean ethics. Our habits form our virtues. In Aristotle, of course. The greater the capacity of a human being to direct his attention to certain processes of life with which his personal judgment is not at the outset familiar, the greater he, the possibility for him to lay the foundation for a development into the spiritual worlds. An example may make this clear. A man is in a certain situation in life where he may perform a certain deed or leave it undone. His judgment suggests to him, do this. But there may be a certain inexplicable something in his feelings that holds him back from the deed. Now, it may be that he does not pay any attention to this inexplicable something that seeks to restrain him, but simply performs the deed according to his capacity to judge. Or he may surrender to the urge of this inexplicable something and leave the deed undone. If he then follows up the matter further, it may become evident that evil would have been the result had he followed his judgment, but that by non-performance of the deed, a blessing has ensued. Such an experience may lead man's thoughts into a quite definite direction. He may say to himself, something lives in me that is better, a better guide than my present capacity of judgment. I must hold my mind open to this, 
something in me cannot at all be reached by the present degree of my capacity of judgment. I think you could actually just refer to this as uh, the belief in a higher power, essentially, as well as our intuition. Of course, I think of Henri Bergson when I talk about such things. The soul is benefited to the highest degree when it directs its attention towards such occurrences in life. It then becomes aware, as though in a state of healthy premonition, that something exists in man that transcends his present ability to judge. Through such attention, the human being directs his efforts towards an extension of soul life. But here also it is possible that one-sidedness may result that is dangerous. Whoever were to form the habit of disregarding his judgment because of his premonitions, impel him to do this or that, would become the plaything of all sorts of uncertain impulses. And from such a habit, it is not a great distance to complete lack of judgment and superstition. Any sort of superstition is fatal to the student of the spiritual. He acquires the possibility of penetrating in a true way into the regions of spiritual life only by guarding himself carefully against superstition, fantastic ideas, and daydreaming. No one can enter the spirit world in the right way who is happy in experiencing something that cannot be grasped by the human mind. A preference for the inexplicable certainly makes no one a student of the spirit. He must completely abandon the notion that a mystic is someone who presumes, wherever it suits him, something inexplicable and unfathomable in the world. The student shows the proper feeling by acknowledging this existence of hidden forces and beings everywhere, but also by assuming that the uninvestigated may be investigated if the necessary powers are present. There is a certain attitude of the soul that is important for the student of the spirit at every stage of his development. This consists in not directing his desire for knowledge in a one-sided way by asking, how may this or that question be answered, but by asking, how do I develop this or that ability in myself? If then, by an inner patient work in himself, this or that faculty is developed, the answer to certain questions is received. Students of the spirit will always foster this attitude of the soul. Through this, they are led to work on themselves, to make themselves more and more mature, and to renounce the desire to force answers to certain questions. I think especially today the, the importance of uncertainty and the, the slight spiritual anxiety of not knowing or being quite positively correct in what you believe in a sort of totalitarian ideological way is just crucial, and we see that even in Rudolf Steiner's recommendations of the correct posture in spiritual work and the exercises to actually enlighten our beings. They will wait until such answers come to them. If, however, they become one-sided here also, they will not advance properly. The student may also have the feeling at a certain point of this development that he, with the degree of his ability, can himself answer the most sublime questions. Here, also, equanimity and equilibrium play an important role in the attitude of soul. It's impossible to think of him constantly referring to equanimity and equilibrium without thinking of the Yachin and Boaz, the two pillars of the temple, 
in which we balance ourselves in the middle pillar. This Kabbalistic idea, this this Western spiritual idea goes all the way back to Solomon's Temple and is just proliferates around the in the esoteric world. And though Steiner talks about it in the most neutral of terms, it's it's coming from a deep well of Western spirituality. And an idea that I think in this case is clearly seen in the East as well. Many more soul faculties could be described, the fostering and development of which are beneficial when the student strives by means of exercises to attain inspiration. In all of them, we should have to emphasize that equanimity and equilibrium are the soul faculties upon which everything depends. They prepare the understanding and the ability to carry out the exercises outlined for the purpose of acquiring inspiration. The exercises for the attainment of intuition demand that the student cause not only the images to which he has surrendered himself in acquiring imagination to disappear from his consciousness, but also the life within his own soul activity into which he has immersed himself for the requirement of inspiration. He should then literally retain nothing in his soul of previously known outer or inner experiences. Were there to be, however, nothing left in his consciousness after this discarding of outer and inner experiences, that is to say, were his consciousness then entirely to disappear and he sink down into unconsciousness, this would then make it clear to him that he had not yet made himself mature enough to undertake exercises for intuition. He would then have to continue the exercises for imagination and inspiration. It sounds like Steiner is coming up with his own sort of philosophical interpretation of spiritual development here, but actually you can tell from the use of his terms how they fit into the more traditional and technical termed schools of mystery and spirituality that he, he comes from. A time will surely come when the consciousness is not empty after the soul has discarded all inner and outer experiences, but when, after the discarding, something remains in consciousness as an effect to which we then may surrender in meditation, just as we had previously surrendered to what owes its existence to outer or inner impressions. This something is of quite a special character. It is in contrast to all preceding experiences, something entirely new. When one experiences it, one knows, this I have not known before. It is a perception, just as the real tone heard by the ear is a perception. But this something can only enter my consciousness through intuition, just as the tone can only enter my consciousness through the ear. Through intuition, man's impressions are stripped of the last trace of the sensory physical. The spiritual world now begins to open itself to cognition in a form that no longer has anything in common with the qualities of the physical world of the senses. Part 7 Imaginative consciousness is attained through the development of the lotus flowers in the astral body, through the exercises that are undertaken for acquiring inspiration and intuition. Certain definite motions, forms, and currents appear in the human ether or life body that were not present previously. They are, in fact, the organs through which man adds to the scope of his faculties the reading of the occult script, and what lies beyond it. The changes in the ether body of a human being who has attained inspiration and intuition 
present themselves to the supersensible cognition in the following manner. Somewhere in the neighborhood of the physical heart, a new center becomes conscious in the ether body, which develops into an etheric organ. From this organ, movements and currents flow to the various members of the human body in the most manifold way. The most important of these currents flow to the lotus flowers, permeating them and their various petals, then proceeding outward, pouring themselves like radiations into external space. The more the human being is developed, the greater the sphere around him within which these radiations are perceptible. The center in the region of the heart does not, however, develop immediately at the start of correct training. It is first prepared. There appears to begin with a temporary center in the head. This then moves down into the neighborhood of the larynx and finally settles in the region of the physical heart. This is something he's describing which is covered quite a lot in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn's middle pillar ritual based on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, of course. Were its development irregular, then the organ of which we have been speaking might immediately be formed in the neighborhood of the heart. In that case, there would be danger that the student, instead of attaining quiet and factual supersensible perception, would become a visionary and fantast. As he develops further, the student acquires the ability to free the currents and structures of his ether body from his physical body and to use them independently. In doing this, the lotus flowers serve him as organs through which he brings the ether body into motion. Before this occurs, however, special currents and radiations must have formed in the sphere of the ether body, enclosing it like a fine network and making it into a self-contained being. If that has happened, the movements and currents taking place in the ether body are able to come into unhindered contact with the outer world of soul and spirit and to unite with it, so that outer occurrences in the realm of soul and spirit and inner events in the human ether body flow into one another. If that happens, the moment has arrived when man perceives the world of inspiration consciously. This cognition occurs in a different way from cognition in the sensory physical world. In the latter, we gain perceptions through the senses and form from them mental images and concepts. This is not the case with the knowledge derived from inspiration. What one knows is immediately present in the act. There is no reflection after perception. What sensory physical cognition gains only afterwards in concepts is, in inspiration, given simultaneously with perception. Man would therefore merge with the environment of soul and spirit and would not be able to distinguish himself from it had he not developed the above-characterized network in the ether body. If the exercises leading to intuition are carried out, their effects extends not only to the ether body but right down into the supersensible forces of the physical body. One should not, however, think that in this way effects take place in the physical body that are not accessible to everyday sensory observation. These are effects that only supersensory cognition can judge. They have nothing whatever to do with external cognition. They are the results of the maturity of consciousness when the latter is able to have experiences in intuition 
in spite of the fact that it has excluded all previously known outer and inner experiences. The experiences of intuition are delicate, intimate, and subtle, and the physical body is, at the present stage of its evolution, coarse in comparison. It offers, therefore, a strong hindrance to the success of intuition exercises. If these are continued with energy and persistence and with the requisite inner tranquility, the powerful hindrances of the physical body are finally overcome. To the student, notices this by the fact that gradually certain expressions of the physical body that formerly took place unconsciously now come under his control. He notices it also by the fact that for a short time he feels the need, for example, so to control the breath that it comes into a sort of concord or harmony with what the soul performs in the exercises or otherwise in inner meditation. The ideal of the development is that no exercises be made at all by means of the physical body itself, also no breathing exercises, but that everything that occurs in the physical body in this way should only come about as a consequence of pure intuition exercises. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk